the next thing is is plot. Now, I'll have other things to say about plot in a minute, but what's interesting at this point, simply from an educational point of view, is, is that here, too, everything was in the students' hands. Um, it was for them to decide what sort of plot they wanted, um, whether, in fact, they wanted to make the play a comedy or a tragedy or, or something else. Um, I'm not going to say which play was chosen, but it could have been taken in any of those directions. Um, and one of the interesting experiments that one can imagine would be to take the grid of a comedy and write a tragedy out of it and see if that has any impact on one's reception. At all events, it was for them to decide on a plot. This was difficult. It's difficult for all sorts of reasons. And um, I think one of the differences between Shakespeare's language and much of the language of contemporary drama is that Shakespeare is very clearly serving different ends in the same parcel or package of language. A single speech may, on the one hand, reinforce an audience's sense that, let us say, Hamlet is encountering the ghost of his father in a place that is physically dangerous. It's a rocky cliff landscape and so on. That is conveyed, something that can't be seen on an Elizabethan stage. Um, so information is included in it, which goes beyond theatre capabilities. It's at the same time serving psychological ends and so on and so forth. So there, there's a lot packed into a few lines. Um, the purpose of language in a great deal of contemporary theatre is in many ways much more functional. When Shakespeare creates a speech of several lines, such as what I've just been talking about, he will often do it with extended metaphors as well, metaphors of the rather florid Renaissance kind that extend over several lines, and they will begin as the X and Y, and then three or four lines later you'll have a so the so-and-so. And, and these big, mil the Miltonic um, simile, as, as it were, um, these big Renaissance metaphors don't hold up the action. It's an extraordinary thing that they can be in there describing a landscape, describing an inner psychological state, Moving the action forward, they do all of this, and they do it in very complex language, which syntactically moves across several lines of poetry. So the, the thing is an extraordinary achievement of language. Modern language doesn't work like that. Um, it's not only when we open the daily newspaper that we see that modern language prefers the functional registers. Um, it's the same on our stages as well. All of the full-blown galleons, as it were, with all their sails hoisted of rhetorical Renaissance language, that would seem grotesque now. And yet, when we say that we hear a Shakespearean rhythm in his plays, presumably that is one of the things that we mean, that sense of extending images over a succession of lines in such a way as to reflect character and drive on the action and even serve theatre-specific purposes. Now, all of that, once we got down to creating the dynamics of, of language, 
in the new play. All of that vanished. It was the first thing to go. Because suddenly, um, language was operating at the level of, um, I'll invent an example, this isn't, I think, in the play, but there's a call for you on line eight, sir. You don't get lines like, well, occasionally you get a line like that from, from a messenger in Shakespeare, but it's very unusual to get a line like, there's a call for you on line eight, sir. <laughs> Not for the reasons that make us laugh, but for obvious other reasons. He isn't functional in the same way. And yet, the moment the plot is put together, um, and this was something slightly different, which I'll talk about in a moment, but when the plot was put together, it entailed language which needed functionality to move the dynamics forward. And that didn't seem to sit with the language we'd inherited from the play that we gutted. The question that is always at that point, at the back of the mind, when you then move into the stage where you say, we need to write something, is how is this going to sound even remotely like the original if every aspect of the register has been shifted into something which is much more in line with, um, to put it crudely, the Daily Mail? It's entailed, I said, by the action, and that is because in gutting the play that was chosen, the students found themselves with a received shape, one of the f features of that shape was, and I think I can say this without giving away which play it was, that particular characters might simply be not, uh, not be on stage for a long time. They might, in fact, vanish from the action. People in Shakespeare, as we know, they go on long journeys, or they die, or whatever it might be. Um, in your new play, you need to find a reason why the character who was there in Acts 1 and 2 suddenly isn't there anymore. Um, now, if the character has died in Shakespeare, do you say, OK, then he dies in our play as well? Do we have a different reason? Does he emigrate? <laughs> Does he go for a holiday in Bermuda? Well, what's happened to this fellow? So there were points like that where the new writers, I'll call the students writers now, found themselves needing a plot that followed specifics that were imposed upon them. And once they decided what the new shape of the plot was, um, they then had to find them, they had to find ways of rationalizing that change in the plot, which involved embedding into the action the rationale and the explanation for why character X suddenly wasn't there anymore. Or, for that matter, why, in the fifth act, character X suddenly reappears. Sudden, there has to be a reason for this. So one of the things to be avoided was to spend an awful lot of time simply explaining stuff. And that, again, casts an extraordinary light on Shakespeare, because he is able to perform the explicatory functions through action. That becomes very instructive when you go back to the original source and you think to yourself, how did he handle that? thought, well, how easily that was done. It was an action. The action is self-explaining. doesn't need comment. Um, it is actually very difficult to come up with an intricate plot which follows the same shape, which has the same appearances and disappearances and reappearances of characters, and doesn't require an awful lot of explication. That was one aspect in which I think that the 
the students, well, I know they did because they remarked on it in the essays, which at the end of the project they submitted, um, they found that their experience of plotting and writing was very heavily dictated um, by the shape of plot and and character structure and, and so on that they'd inherited. Um, the, the students, when they were writing, um, they, they, they'd chosen to set their own plot in the 1930s, the early 30s. Now, that, once again, introduces a complication because it's not the idiom of 2008. So they'd chosen a historical period which wasn't the same as the period out of which the play came. So in the writing process, they found themselves involved in a lot of negotiation with language, um, trying, on the one hand, to imagine the kind of language that people would have couched their statements in in the 1930s. On the other hand, to get away from the the rather overblown rhetoric of the Renaissance. And, um, and also to be on the guard for phrases and words in their own language, which would not yet have been in the language in the 1930s. Um, so, what, what do I know? Nerd, for example. I mean, you can't use that word in a 1930s play. So they found, I think that the, the, the compulsions they were under were not so much that they found themselves moving towards florid, massively constructed uh, metaphors. There was very little of that. And in fact, the outcome in what's been written so far, which is a good half of the play, um, is in fact very uh, colloquial, very good, robust spoken English, um, fitted to the meter uh, quite extraordinarily. Uh, one of the things that became plain to all of us as we went along, and, and this is something which was implicit from the beginning and, and so obvious um, that I hadn't in my stupidity thought of it, uh, was, was that of course Shakespeare, when he was writing, was doing it with a blank piece of paper. So if he wanted to say to himself, no, I'll start this line with a trochee because I want to say, damn it, or whatever the line says at the beginning of the line, then I can do it because there's nothing on the page. I'm inventing it from zero. That's not the case here. Everything has to be followed. So all of the freedom of original creation, everything that in fact, in that sense, makes it um, technically fun, let us say, well, not all of it, perhaps, but a lot of it, has been stripped out. We've put the students into a straitjacket, and in the writing, um, they found, of course, that they were having to think, well, I'd like the character to say this, but he can't, because the meter won't let me. Uh, and having, having realised just how very, very difficult that was, I have to say it's quite extraordinary um, that they've produced such um, believable, such credible spoken English uh, in the process, it doesn't sound like someone with the rhetoric of the Renaissance in their ear. I mean, it's, it sounds like someone writing in, in a 20th century idiom. In the process of writing, the students immerse themselves in language of the 1930s. Um, now, I'm not going to name particular sources that they went back to because that might already suggest the kind of direction that the plot took, and I'd like that to remain a surprise. Um, but they went to one or two rather extraordinary sources um, and worked a lot on the kinds of register that would have been expected of the 30s. Now, if they'd have, I don't know if they'd have found the whole process easier if they'd been 
setting it in their own year, um, in the here and now. I think that some of the characters, again, I think I can say this without giving anything away, there is a character in the new play. Um, I can give you the title of it. It's called The Right Woman. Um, there's a character in The Right Woman who's a journalist, and there are moments when the journalist is sitting at a typewriter bashing out copy, and the voiceover that we get is presumably what he's typing in at that moment. There are other bits where he's standing at a microphone and um, doing a, a, an interview or a broadcast, whatever. So there are various functions for this journalist. Um, now, the, the idiom of journalism itself would have been different in the 1930s from what it is now. The registers, let's say, of respect towards important people, the, the degree of respect, the ways they're addressed, all of these things are different. Um, the ways of addressing the audience, if you're doing a radio broadcast, all of these things are different. Um, and in a sense, of course, it would be easier to, to write it in the here and now, because you then don't have to do any thinking about what is different and what I have to put differently in order to make it credible as an act of the 1930s. Um, so I suppose in that respect, yes, they they may have added an extra complication to their their heap by putting it in the 1930s, but it was already such a horribly, horribly difficult task that I don't think that daunted them too much.